Our lives demonstrate that reality. Do we look like people that have their eyes and their hearts and their minds fixed on the glorious future reality that God has promised to His followers? Or do we look like people who are not in any real hurry to leave this world and treat death as some tragic end to our unfulfilled goals and dreams and ambitions? You ever heard of that movie, The Bucket List? I'm sure a few of you have. This idea of a bucket list has become popular in our culture. In other words, this is a list of things that you got to do before you, quote, kick the bucket, which means pass away, die, expire, stop breathing. So people put all these things on their list. But I'm wondering, of all the things that people put on their list, how many of those things actually have anything to do with the world to come? With the age to come. So people say things like, hey, I've got to go here before I die. I've got to see this place. I've got to experience this beach. You know what I'm saying? Or, you haven't lived until you've done this. You ever heard a statement like that? You haven't lived until you've done this. You've never really lived until you've been to Hawaii. You've never really lived until you've eaten this cuisine. All of it, for the most part, beloved, is focused on the here and now. All these bucket lists. I gotta jump out of a plane. I gotta cross the Grand Canyon. I gotta scale the highest mountain. Focused on the here and now. What if our bucket lists were like this? I gotta see my mother come to Jesus Christ. I gotta see my neighbor bow his knee to the Lord. I gotta become more like Jesus Christ before I go home. What kind of bucket list would that be? Well, that's a bucket list that's focused on something that's entirely different. The church, beloved, is not immune to a preoccupation with this world. In fact, some false teachers even promote a preoccupation with this world. And as a result, our love for and proclamation for the world to come has been diminished. It's been diminished. People are more generally interested in talking about how to live in luxury and retire in luxury than about their future home in eternity. That's what Chris was talking about this morning. That's what occupies our minds. How am I going to spend my retirement? Will I have enough to get through? But the people in our text today, in Hebrews, were exactly the opposite. They were exactly the opposite. So if you have your Bibles open, look at Hebrews eleven thirteen with me. It says, 
These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. So this morning, beloved, we will examine the last two of the four faith-driven habits of the patriarchs that we must duplicate in order for our lives to be pleasing to God. Quickly, I will review last week the first two points, in case you weren't here, or just by way of a reminder. All of these points are in your bulletin on the left side. The first one was that the patriarchs, or as we learned last week, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, they stayed the course, beloved. They stayed the course. That means they died in faith, not having received the things promised, as the text tells us, meaning that they continued to follow God and trust or have faith in His promises throughout their lives. They stayed the course, even though God's promises to them were never fully experienced in this life or on this earth. Why? Because their hope was fixed not on this life or this present world, but on that eternal realm where they would be everlastingly blessed according to God's promises, according to God's word. Second, we saw that the patriarchs were able to stay the course. They did not turn back. They continued in faith, even in death, because they saw the future. They saw the future. Their ability, beloved, to press on and stay on course in spite of the difficult circumstances in their life had everything to do with them continuing to see with eyes of faith, not physical eyes, but with eyes of faith, the glorious future that God had in store for His people. And their absolute assurance of God's promises caused them to live very differently in this present world. And that brings us to the third point this morning. The patriarchs spoke the truth. They spoke the truth. So let me help you with that just for a second. Truth is the way things really are. Would you agree? Truth is the way things really are. It's not my opinion. It's not even how I might perceive them to be. It's how they really are. Let me give you just a simple illustration. If I went to a planet that was alien in nature, and all I had was a black and white television, by the way, how many of you remember black and white TVs? Yeah. Good old days, right? If I had to explain to this alien planet what our world looked like, and all I had was a black and white TV, I would have to tell them about the colors of our world, right? Because the black and white TV was portraying something that was not really true about our reality. It appears that we are just blacks and whites and shades of gray, but we are much more than that, filled with all types of colors. But they would have to accept that on faith, because all I had was a black and white television to show them. Whether they accepted it or not, whether they could see it or not, didn't change the truth of that reality 
that we are living in color, not black and white. So I just want to talk to you a little bit. I wanted to share that with you because these men spoke the truth, reality as it really is. Let's look back at the text, Hebrews eleven thirteen. It says, These all, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and here it is, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. That's the truth that they acknowledged. In what sense were these men strangers and exiles on earth? Well, strangers implies this, that they were outsiders, that they didn't belong. That's what strangers implies. And exiles implies that they were living outside of their homeland or the place where they felt like they truly belonged. So the writer of Hebrews is saying these men considered themselves permanent foreigners on earth, like aliens from another planet. That's what the text is telling us. Now, it's important to note this, that it doesn't just say that the patriarchs were strangers and exiles on earth, as if it was just a fact. Like, I'm just stating a fact. This is, what it, this is the truth. This is what these men were, strangers and exiles. It doesn't say that. It says that the patriarchs acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. To acknowledge is to admit that something exists, is true, or is real. To admit that something exists, or is true, or is real. So what the text is saying is that these men admitted their alien status on earth. They didn't have to be told that they were foreigners, that they were strangers, that they were exiles. They knew what they were by faith. And they expressed that very reality. In their lives. These men had God provided convictions about unseen realities that this world was not their home. Now, this is important because it is an ongoing or habitual, regular practice, acknowledgement of our future home with God that will help us to live for God in the present in the here and now, in a way that is pleasing to Him, in a way that brings Him glory, in a way that honors Him. It is that ongoing acknowledgement of who we are on this earth. It will keep us focused on the things that are important and help us stay the course and endure, beloved, the trials and tribulations of this life. And there are many knowing that they belong to a reality that is passing away and we will not always be a part of. Because, beloved, this is not our ultimate homeland. This is not. This is not our permanent residence. And this reality is powerless to produce the fulfillment of God's glorious promises to His people. Did you hear me? It's powerless. It cannot give us what God has promised. Now, why was it important for the Jewish readers of Hebrews who were reading this book, its original context, 
to know that by faith the patriarchs called themselves strangers and exiles on the earth. That's simple. Because their decision to follow Christ, beloved, and proclaim Him as Lord and Messiah meant in many cases the very real loss of their friends, their family, their jobs, their jobs, their place in community, for the most part, their entire way of life as they knew it and had become accustomed to. That's what it meant for these Jewish Christians, those who abandoned Judaism and embraced Jesus as the Christ and Messiah. That's what it meant. Their whole world was turned upside down when they converted to Christianity. But guess what? If they weren't trying to find their fulfillment or ultimate satisfaction in this world because they knew that this was not their very real lasting home since they were, as the text tells us, strangers and exiles on this earth, just like Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, then that knowledge would help them endure the temporary, and that's what they are, sufferings and tribulations associated with following Christ in this present reality. That's the point. That's what's going on here. That's why they're, this is why that's so important. This is not just, oh yeah, we're strangers and exiles. It means something. It should mean something. And it meant something to the original readers who were under incredible persecution and suffering for their faith in Jesus Christ. Reminding themselves that this is not my home. I will endure because I'm going somewhere. And this place is not it. Let me imply this though to our setting because we may suffer somewhat for our Christian faith. But not like they did in the first century, beloved. Not in America anyway. That still goes on around the world, but here we are somewhat protected from such things. But let me read you this. I don't know if you know this book. It's by C.S. Lewis. If you've never read it, it's a classic. I would encourage you to get it. It's called Screwtape Letters. Screwtape Letters by C.S. Lewis. It is a fictional book. That means it's not true. I always get those two confused. It means it's not true, fictional. It's a, and in this little section here, there's a conversation going on in the mind of C.S. Lewis has wrote this out. He was a Christian. Between two demons. So it's like a look into the spiritual realm as C.S. Lewis sees it. And there's this conversation. These two demons are talking to one another and they are seeking to undermine this new Christian that they are focused on. They're seeking to disrupt his life, destroy him. So here's the conversation between the two demons. They, and he's talking about humanity, they, of course, do tend to regard death as the prime evil and survival as the greatest good. Did you get that? Humanity tends to regard death or see death as the greatest evil that could happen to them and survival in this world as the greatest thing that they can grasp onto. And then he says this, but that is because we have taught them to do so. The truth is that the enemy, and now they're talking about God, having oddly destined these mere animals, that's how they see us, 
to life in his own eternal world has guarded them pretty effectively from the danger of feeling at home anywhere else. So what the demons are saying is we have worked overtime on these people to remove that desire for their future home and to instead see this as their permanent dwelling place and therefore see death as their greatest enemy and survival in this world and the things of this world as their closest companions and friends. Interesting. Beloved, if heaven is your destiny, if it is, and it is if you know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, then you should never feel at home in this world's present fallen condition. You should not. You should not. You were never meant to. And if you do, you have lost touch with reality. It's that simple. You have lost touch with reality. I am convinced that trying to make this place something that it cannot be disappoints God and frustrates us tremendously. We want this world to give us lasting satisfaction, but beloved, it is broken. It is broken and it cannot and it will not comply. Write down Romans chapter 8, verses 18 through 25, and you can read that on your own for your own meditation and study. Romans 8, 18 through 25. What we need to do is let our minds and hearts be captured by the possibilities of the world that God has promised to His people. To us who follow Christ. A world, beloved, without sin. Did you hear me? A world without sin. That means no more sin for me either. No more struggle. No more battle. No more fight. No more arguments. No more broken hearts. No more divorces. No more adultery. No more pain. A world without sin. Beloved, a world without death. A world without death. A world without separation from your loved ones because of disease. No more crying. No more pain. Where Christ is King. And righteousness reigns, beloved. It reigns. Then, as a believer, if you really grasp that, you will boldly and joyfully say, this is not my home. This is not my home. This is not the final word of what God has for me. It cannot be. I am a stranger and an exile on this earth. And that acknowledgement will dramatically change your reactions to life's very difficult circumstances. And more importantly, the primary direction of your life 
for the better. Beloved, the patriarchs stayed the course because they saw the future. As a result, they spoke the truth. They acknowledged who they were. They knew where they were going. And because of that, they sought the better. They sought the better. That's the fourth point. Look back at the text with me. It says in Hebrews 11, beginning in verse 14, for people who speak thus, what is he talking about? For people who say they are strangers and exiles on the earth. That's what he's talking about, verse 13. For people who speak thus, they make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. Obviously, they're talking about being strangers and exiles. So they're, they're going somewhere. And where they are is obviously not it. That's what he's saying. Verse 15, if they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country. That is a heavenly one. Beloved, the text is telling us that the patriarchs were seeking a permanent home, a better place, a better country, and a better city. And so what he's referring to here is if, if they were seeking the homeland, if what they were talking about when they said, listen, we're strangers and exiles here in the land of Canaan, if they were thinking, well, because we should return to the homeland or the birthplace of Abraham, which was in Mesopotamia, the land he was born in, then the, the writer is saying if that's what they were thinking about, then they could have gone back or returned to that land. If their statement is just saying, we don't belong here, we belong somewhere else on earth, then they had plenty of opportunities to go back, but they never did. So why would they keep saying, hey, we're strangers, we're exiles, we need to go back, but then they never go back? That's because they were never thinking about Mesopotamia. They were thinking about something very different from this present reality. In fact, just to note, so you know that that's the case, you can look up Genesis 24, verses 1 through 10. That'll tell you the story of Abraham when he was in the land of Canaan, he came, coming from the land of Mesopotamia. He wanted a wife for his son, so he sent his servant back to go and get a wife for his son from his homeland. But he said, do not let my son go back there. In other words, he had no intentions of going back to his former land. After Jacob, another one of the patriarchs, had spent two decades or 20 years in Mesopotamia, the text tells us in Genesis 30, verse 25, he did not consider it his homeland. That was not his homeland, but he asked Laban to send him back to Canaan, where they were residing. All of the patriarchs were buried in Canaan. Because when Abraham left his original homeland, there was no going back. God had promised them something better. And that heavenly country had captured their hearts and their minds, making them permanent foreigners on this earth and changing the direction of their lives forever. Look back at the text, Hebrews eleven sixteen. It says, But as it is, they desire a better country. A better country. That is, just in case you didn't understand it, a heavenly one. At this point in Hebrews, this is the writer's tenth use of the word better. Tenth time he has used the word better. That means greater, superior, or more desirable. 
And he has already emphasized in the beginning of the book that Jesus is the better. He is superior in every way. Jesus is the better hope. Jesus is the better sacrifice. A sacrifice that can bring the redemption that those people need. Forgiveness and complete salvation. Including, beloved, a better, superior, more desirable, future, eternal country where God's people will have unhindered, soul-satisfying fellowship with the Lord and everlasting blessings. By emphasizing the better, by pointing out that it is a better country, he is pleading with them to not give up the superior for the inferior. Don't give up your better country for this one. Don't give up your pursuit of that heavenly land for this one. Strive or long for the better. And that's the word he uses. He uses the word desire in verse 16. You see it there in your text. You know what that means? It means to reach or stretch out. To reach or stretch out. Stretch out. It means the the mental effort of stretching oneself out for a thing or longing after it. Longing. See, the patriarchs were not just wishing for a better country. You know, it would be nice, you know, one day when we all get to heaven. That wasn't their attitude. They were passionately pursuing that better country, that realistic hope, based on God's unbreakable promises, beloved. Pursuing it. Listen to what this one very earlier writer says, Christian writer. He was a... His name is Richard Baxter. For some of you that might matter. For others it doesn't matter. He's an English Puritan from the 17th century. This is what he said. Just listen. I'll try to explain some of this because it's weird language as we go. If there be so certain and glorious a rest for the saints, why is there no more industrious seeking after it? Industrious, he means energetic or diligence in going after it. Why aren't they pursuing it? One would think, if a man did but once hear of such unspeakable glory to be obtained and believe that what he heard was true, he should be carried away with the intense feeling of his desire after it and should almost forget to eat and drink and should care for nothing else. And speak of and inquire after nothing else but how to get this treasure. And yet, people who hear of it daily and profess to believe it as a fundamental article of their faith, meaning the very foundation of the things that they believe, the very basics of what it means to be a Christian, they do as little-minded or labor for it, as if they had never heard of any such thing, 
or did not believe one word they heard. See, here's the thing, guys. Too many Christians live as practical atheists. And what I mean by that is they live as if this is it. This is it. As if there's nothing hereafter to really get excited about and to radically live their life for. They say they believe these things, but their life doesn't match up with their testimony. These things shouldn't be so. They just shouldn't be so, beloved. Embracing the truth of God's amazing promises should be life-changing. It should radically impact who we are, what we do, and what we spend our time and our energy and our resources and our talents for. Over the past two weeks, we have looked at four faith-driven habits of the patriarchs that we must duplicate in order for our lives to be pleasing to God. If you are a true follower of Jesus Christ, then you, according to the Word of God, are a new creation. You are a new creation, and at the core of your being is a God-given desire to please Him. It's there. It's inescapable. You can't get away from it. So let me exhort you to consider the patriarch's example and examine your life in light of it. Has your life been altered by your faith? Has it been changed by what you say you believe? Specifically in this context, the hope of your future home with God. And are you staying the course and seeing the future and speaking the truth and seeking the better? Are you doing those things? If not, then make a commitment right now to change. Right? Is that not what the Christian life is about? A lot of change. Ongoing change. Conformity to the things of God. To the image of Jesus Christ. Make that commitment right now by the power of the Holy Spirit that resides in you. He lives in you. To do these things. And then you know what you need to do? You need to partner up with your brothers and sisters in Christ who can encourage you, exhort you, walk alongside you, hold you up, pick you up, pat you on the back, remind you of who you are, refocus you. That's why we need each other. That's why we got to come together. And we will encourage each other as we pursue this lifelong journey of faith until we get home. Beloved, as I close this time, let's just look back at Hebrews 11.16. Look at what the conclusion of this text is, according to the writer of Hebrews. Hebrews 11.16, he says, But as it is, they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. Therefore, because of that, God is not ashamed to be called 
their God, for he has prepared for them a city. God repeatedly identifies himself in Scripture as the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And it is because of their eschatological faith. That is, their faith in the things to come. In the last things reality. The future. That God was pleased and happy to be identified as their God. For these men and for all who follow their example, God is pleased to be called their God, and He has prepared for them an eternal city where God will dwell with them forever in the ultimate paradise. That's our hope, beloved. Let's pray. Father, I thank You for Your Word. I thank You for the truth of it. Father, help us to believe it, to forsake the lies that we allow to to occupy our minds and our hearts, the lies of this world and the lies of the enemy. Father, help us to see reality, to know it, to believe it, to live it out, that we indeed, because of our faith in Jesus Christ, are strangers and exiles on this earth. And Father, we should be about the business of pursuing, seeking after a better country that is a heavenly one. And as we looked at this morning, Father, as, as our brother Chris read from Your Word in Matthew, Father, even there, Jesus is instructing us to store for ourselves treasures where? Here, in this passing world where things are corrupted and get stolen and rust away. No. In that heavenly realm, That while we are here, we know where we are going and we are presently thinking about that reality and so it impacts what we do with our life now. Because that is where we will be permanently. So Father, there are so many implications of this. May You impact us all in unique ways as we think seriously about the temporary status of this place and focus instead on the eternal dwelling that is truly our home. May it give us the hope and the endurance to stand and endure and to live through the very many tribulations and trials that we will experience in this place. And Father, may we not just endure and live through those trials, but may we live for You May we proclaim Jesus Christ. May we live for Jesus Christ since we will be living with Him for an eternity. We ask these things in His name. Amen.